Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, property and investment podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn, Anna-Claire Harper. Our guest today, Mark Homer, is a multi-million pound property developer and investor. He's been investing for over 15 years and has sourced 550 plus properties for his self and his investors, manages 720 properties plus, has written five to six books and has a world record for speaking, as well as currently converting 98 flats and being the co-founder of several businesses, including Progressive Property, which is the largest property training company in the UK. So he's absolutely brilliantly placed to explain the world of property investment to us. So welcome to the podcast, Mark, and thank you for joining us. Did I get everything right in the intro there? Five or six books. (laughs) Six. Yeah, let's let's roll with six. Let's go with uh, six then. Invite me on, Anna. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with a bit of context. Most people have some experience of property, if it's only living in a house or watching homes under the hammer when they're in the gym. But investing and developing property professionally is quite a different game. There's so many different possible approaches and strategies. And as I mentioned in the intro, you've got years of experience from simple to really quite sophisticated. So explain the different possible approaches to property investment in simple terms, in terms my mum would understand. Well, when I started, I started buying little, well, I started with a new build, sort of what not to do. And I I bought various properties overseas. But then subsequently, I bought um, lots of little terraces um, and small properties that needed refurbing around Peterborough. And um, what we were doing was, was sort of buying three bed ex council, refurbishing them, remortgaging them and then getting the the money back. And the reason I focused on those sorts of properties was because the yield was so much higher. Generally speaking, the 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 cheaper the property, the higher the yield. Um, now it is a bit of a a sort of balance between finding an area where you can get good tenants and good tenant demand and getting a high yield. But you know, on, on properties like that, you can get about seven percent. And um, you know, we we've had great capital growth out of those. So. That's what I started to do. And really, I'm not doing that much different today in comparison to where I started, where I came from. I'm buying bigger buildings, buying commercial buildings. I'm converting them into apartments and into cluster flats. And then I'm remortgaging them to get um, you know, a good chunk, if not all of the money back. And, um, and then I'm renting them out and holding them mainly. Sometimes I'm selling. And um, yeah, we're putting tenants in and we're, we're getting income streams. So that's, that, that, that's how it's evolved. Clearly now it's on a bigger scale. It's a better use of time. If you buy 10 single lets, it'll take you a lot longer to buy them and refurbish them and, and do all you need to do on them than, than it will a, a commercial building that's 10 times the size. So you get time leverage with these bigger developments and, uh, and generally higher percentage profit. So that's, that's why I focus on them. Okay. Fantastic. So aside from the simple sort of single let and the commercial conversions, what are the other approaches to property investment, perhaps which you haven't mentioned or tried, like indirect investments or maybe other types of commercial property? Yeah, um, the building that we're doing at the moment has got a supermarket on the ground floor and it has another retail unit. And we just we've signed an agreement to lease with the big housing association. So they're going to move in and sell their developments from there. So they're, they're two retail investments we've got. I sold the supermarket or I sold the interest, the 999 year interest to a London council 
for that supermarket just before Christmas. But I suspect we'll we'll hold the other bit. So they're similar-ish. You probably don't get the same uplift with those as, as developing, dependent on what tenant you put in. But um, for those, there'd be an income stream and something that we would hold over the long term. We've also bought a lot of HMOs over the years, and I've scaled that up into cluster flats. So we did a, a building of 37 rooms split over seven flats. So each individual there will be living with five or six people in a cluster flat, sharing a kitchen lounge diner, all with en suites. You know, really high end, nice spec. So I like that model because we can get yields of 17, 18, 19%. And another model that we sometimes use is serviced accommodation, where you rent a flat out by the night or rent a house out by the night. So you're effectively competing with local hotel rooms. And the yields on those types of properties can be very, very high as long as they're in the right location and there's good demand from people wanting nightly rentals. But clearly that's a a business within itself. You've got to do the cleaning. You've got to make sure the linen is all washed, checking people in. It's a lot more time intensive. So it depends what sort of time you want to invest in it and what sort of strategy you want to follow in terms of the amount of cash that you want to put in uh, as to what you're going to do. Within the different types of strategies we've just discussed, how and when do investors get paid? Presumably for most of your deals that you're talking about, it's buy once, put the money in and then hold it long term and just continue reaping the rewards um, and, and somewhere between sort of 7 and 19%, I think you said. Yeah. Generally speaking, we'll be buying a building refurbishing or or I should say converting it and then bringing a commercial lender in afterwards who will then usually pay a good chunk of the money back that's gone into the investment and then we hold it over the long term so yes the the gross rental yield on a a you know a set of cluster flats a a big block might be about 18 percent but clearly you've got costs to run that you know and those costs are are quite a bit higher than a you know a, a normal single let so Let's say on that you end up yielding at about 12% net net, but most of your money's back, if not all of it. So um, actually, it's not a 12% return on capital invested. If you've got all the money back, it's an infinite return You know, on, on a, a building, which I can think of you know, that, that um, we've been involved with in more recent times, um, the net investment or sorry, the net return on it versus the capital that's been left in it is about 100% return on capital invested on a yearly basis. Sounds ridiculous. It sounds far too high. But uh, by applying the right leverage, that's what you can sh- achieve. Fantastic. What is a realistic target in return for a novice investor wanting to make, say, their first direct property investment? And how much difference would it then make to their typical returns if they had a bit more knowledge and experience? Well, I think for the average person going in and, and buying, in simple terms, a little three-bed terraced house that rents out at six fifty a year, which is very achievable in Peterborough, um, you're going to be getting a £7,800 gross return. I think of that, if you take probably, let's t- say you take 25% off for costs, you end up with 5850. Clearly, you've got to kind of have a mortgage on that as well. Mortgage rates are quite low at the moment. Let's say your, your monthly mortgage is another, or your yearly mortgage is another 2500 off that figure. So you're going to be netting 3350 on a yearly basis. Now, a little three-bed property like that might cost you 130000 and you'd probably be able to buy it 
with a deposit of 25%. So if I just do some numbers, 3350. So you'd be getting a mortgage of 97,500. Yep. And your deposit is 32.5 plus, you know, stamp duty, maybe some refurb. So let's say you're putting in 40,000. You've got a 3350 return every year and your gross investment's 40,000. Well, in simple terms, that's 8.4% net income return on the 40,000 you put in. But you probably, if you buy it cheap, you're probably going to be able to remortgage it. Maybe you get 20 or 30,000 of that thousand back. And that may take the return on capital invested up to about 11%, something like that. So that's very achievable. Clearly, that's just the income side of the equation. Then there's the capital side as well. A property of 130000 over the long term could be expected to go up 5% per annum. That's pretty reasonable, which is 6500 per year. So 6500 a year return on a 40000 investment is another 16%. So if you took the 16% and added um, the, I think it was 8.4, was it? We, yeah. we had, we're getting there to 24 25% net capital uh, return on capital invested for both income and capital growth. Now, you don't know what the capital growth is going to be. You know, it definitely varies. You know it'll go up over time, but it, you can't predict what it's going to be and when it's going to be. So probably just focus on the income return. You're definitely going to be getting your 8 9%. Um, and then over the long term, if you add that to the capital, you're probably going up to 24 25% return on capital invested. Sounds really high. Sounds ridiculous. But that's the reality. It's a lot, lot higher. And you, I noticed you, you used that word direct investment earlier on. Uh, most people don't even seem to, I don't know, don't, don't seem to see or understand the difference between investing in a property fund and investing directly in a property that you, you purchase, but you obviously do. Uh, there's a very, very big difference uh, in terms of return. Uh, I suspect it's the fees they take out and, mm. and everything yeah. else that goes in between. So, you know, on something like that, you might be getting 6 or 7% in a, something that a fund manager runs. Well, you go and buy a little buy-to-let, I think over the long term, you could you, you could very feasibly expect a, a 20% plus return on, on something that's good that yields well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it sounds very good. If you make it all sound very easy. So I'm glad you mentioned the capital growth side of things, because I think a lot of people who sort of, for example, in, in my age group, look at their parents' generation and think, you know, you made a load of money in property, um, but a lot of it was based on capital growth, which is not something that you actually did. <laughs> what has really determined their level of returns across the property investment landscape historically? Is it luck or skill or knowledge? And has it changed in recent years? Well, it's a whole mix of all that stuff, isn't it? You look at lots of people in the, the southeast of England, uh, as you say, older people, and they're sitting on piles of equity, whereas some areas of the north of England, they haven't made so much. But what do you mean specifically what has determined the returns? What, what I suppose this part of it, I, I sort of think with the way the market's got a lot more sophisticated now that it's increasingly regulated, there's a lot more to consider and you have to be a bit cleverer to make the same amount of profit. Because for example, if I buy another property tomorrow, I'm going to be paying significantly more stamp duty than I would have been paying three years ago. Um, yeah. So everything has everything is more costly and more complicated now. It, so I it think is. it's less of a lucky game today yeah. than it might have been previously. 
well, that's potentially true, but you know, that's all I've ever heard. I've been doing this for 15 years and, you know, 06, 07, I had all the oldest and, oh, well, it's, you know, it's not like it was in my day or the, the prices are too high and you're all getting in too late and you're going to lose a load of money. And a few of them were right. But they've been <laughs> a long time. And then, of course, 2009, 8, 9, 10, everyone was rolling around saying, oh, the property's, you know, going to kill you. It's, 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 the, the, it's like Satan. It's awful. It's, you know, the values have all dropped. You, it's all very well you know, trying to go into property now, but you can't because it's so risky. But the reality was the risk was actually at its lowest probably in 2009 or 2010 because the prices have fallen a good 30%. So your risk could reduce massively, you know, and then people were quite positive. I don't know, 13, 14, maybe 15, maybe a bit too much. So then all the Brexit stuff started and we got, you know, this um, plus 24 and then all the other stuff, with the PRA that meant you've got to have more capital when you're getting a mortgage. Obviously, people have jumped onto it all, but it doesn't necessarily mean it is more difficult. It looks like it might be more difficult. And, you know, you generally just need to change your strategy a bit. Yes, the stamp duty is annoying. That's one of the reasons I've continued to buy commercial buildings because, it's ex- you know, they're exempted from all these stamp duty rules. If I buy a commercial building and convert it, um, I'm paying much lower levels of stamp duty. And uh, and if you buy in a limited company, you sidestep all all the rules that say you can't offset the mortgage interest if you own the property personally. Um, so there are ways round all this stuff. Remember, you know, in your parents' day, um, it was a lot harder to borrow money. And actually, in 2009, 10, 11, that was the difficult thing. I was oh, you can't get any money out of the banks. It's difficult. It's all cash. Well, that was nonsense then because if you walked around enough banks all around London and made relationships locally with you know, the banks that were still lending, then you could get money. Uh, and it's far easier now than it was in 2010. So what you generally find is it's a bit like a slide rule. Some of the things are really good and really easy, and some are not so good and more difficult, but it, it's never all one way. You know, now it's easy to borrow money, rents are good, there's good tenant demand, but regulation not so good taxation not so good well that probably helps the rental yield the rental yield soared in in the recession um yields went right up because the values came down whereas in 2006 2007 the big problem was yield was so thin you know you're in a position where the capital values have gone up loads the rents hadn't keep kept pace it was very difficult to get the mortgages to work because the rent didn't cover them therefore it was difficult to strip all your capital back until the banks started saying, oh, well, we've got a different way of working the rent, rent out, so we'll let you have the money anyway. So it just, you know, there's always some things that are good and some things that are not so good. And the market adjusts when something is tougher to make it easier in another way anyway. I suppose yeah. the, other side, the other side of my question, in a way, was comparing it to other asset classes. Because, for example, yeah. if you invest in a tracker fund, you're not going to be far off having picked stocks on average. So maybe it isn't so much related to sort of skill and knowledge, but also just timing and, and so on. Um, yeah, there's definitely timing there. There has to be. But it's also about those that actually go and do and, and sort of crack on. Sure. But you're right. Yeah, the track, the, you, um, I, I subscribe to that mentality. You know, I, I, um, I came out of the market at the end of last year, the, the, the stock market, uh, because I just felt that it was quite 
you know, fully valued. Mm. Certainly the international stuff. I suspect there's quite a few English companies which are looking good value at the moment, especially with all the Brexit doom and gloom, um, especially stuff on the FTSE 250. The, 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 you know, they're not, not the ones that are internationally based or getting the profits from overseas that, you know, in, in foreign currency. So I think there's probably some value there, but you're right. You're probably better just to buy a tracker rather than pay, pay them all the fees and let them not do any better than uh, the market anyway. So onto the topic of alternatives to property, how do the returns to direct property like we were talking about earlier compare with other asset classes so let's say stocks and shares on average pensions putting money in an ISA both in absolute terms and relative to risk well I I mean equities if you the best way to invest in equities probably is to buy a series of tracker funds Vanguard do great tracker funds I use Hargreaves Lansdowne and you're probably better not going with a fund manager because over time it's proven that most of them including Neil Woodford who was the star manager for 30 years and I bought into, you know, he, he's, he's had a terrible year. So over time, it's proven that trackers do just as well, if not better, but you don't pay all the fees. So that's probably the right way to get in. My experience of that sort of investment, income and capital, all rolled up. You're probably getting six, seven, eight, nine percent, something like that over the long term. So risk wise, well, they will obviously go up and come down. I remember in 09, the market went from 7,000 to about 3,500, so it pretty much halved. The property market didn't do that. It, uh, it dropped, depending where you were, in Peterborough, probably about 30% if you actually had to sell a property, because, of course, lots of people refused to accept the much lower pricing. Um, so I think in, in terms of risk, well, you know, if you spread your money around with a tracker, so it's around quite a few different companies, you've certainly diversified the risk. And I think it's good to do both. I wouldn't necessarily say, well, equities are necessarily riskier or less risky than, than property. I just think you should do both. I mean, it's, the way I look at it is I get an ISA every year. It's 20,000 this year. I can put 20,000 in and that can all go into equities. And then most of the rest of my money I use to buy properties with cash, refurbish them and then strip, strip as much back by putting it on long-term finance. I can usually borrow money at two and a half, 2.75, something like that, all in. So, you know, that makes a lot of sense in my mind. Yeah, I don't see that it necessarily one is riskier than the other, but I certainly don't believe in buying property through a fund. You know, returns are even lower, 5 or 6%. They can be quite illiquid. It can be difficult to get your money out. Certainly when Brexit came along, all the funds shut, or quite a few did. You couldn't get your money out. The same thing happened in the credit crunch. Returns are pretty poor. I've seen what they do. They just go and buy these huge commercial buildings with supposedly sort of low risk tenants, who, uh, which means they're paying a lot for the building. They're not really adding value. They're not putting tenants in and sort of pushing the value up. They're not really getting involved in development. And often I think they are stripping if they buy something cheap, let's say they buy something for 20 million, uh, but it's worth 24, I suspect they put it into a company of, of theirs beforehand at 24 million and then sell it onto the fund, sorry, at 20 million, and then sell it onto the fund at, at 24, you know, obviously get it valued and whatever, in there, and then strip out a good chunk of money beforehand. Um, so I'm, I'm not into it, if I'm honest. And in a way, it takes away one of the best things about 
investing directly in property because yeah. that you get the fundamental backing of having bricks and mortar and also demand yeah. and supply that's easier to access and control to an extent yeah you can control it you can you know if you want to put the time and the effort in you know get that tenant to pay you want to refurb it and just go the extra mile to get the extra value out of it you've got to sell the thing because you really need the money well you'll be able to sell it at a price with those funds you don't have that control you don't always have the choice you know as to whether you can sell your units yeah so going back to what's attractive about property, one of the biggest things is that it's backed by fundamentals of demand and supply. What is it that drives really drives value in the property market? Well, the first thing would be sentiment. As with equities and, and any other investment, um, human emotion is the overriding factor when determining short-term price changes. So people get whipped up by the newspapers um, and then it all goes a bit sour when Brexit comes along or... Theresa May had a waffle or, you know, Greece looks like it's going into Armageddon or, you know, Donald, Donald Trump gets elected. All that stuff does affect the short term market and, and, and things like stamp duty going up and stuff like that. So the long term fundamentals um, since 2000 and I don't know, six, seven before, you know, when I started heavily investing in it, they probably haven't changed that much. We've got a, a growing population. It's an aging population, but there are lots of sort of babies being born. There are not enough properties. They're not building enough. Right back to the Barker report of 2003, Kate Barker identified that we, we needed, I think it was something like 250,000 new properties every year. Yeah. Now that's been updated since uh, quite a few times, but we haven't got anywhere near that number. And there just doesn't seem the political will, even though politicians say that's what they want to do, they don't actually go away and build those houses and put the money in. Uh, they just can't seem to kick the can down the road. So, you know, sort of UK industry and, and, and wages and inflation and all that sort of stuff, probably not gone up in the, I don't know, 2007 to 2017 period, as it would have done in the 10 years before that. And productivity's not grown quite as much probably because of the banks have been repairing themselves and, and some other other factors. Uh, so those fundamentals have changed. But, hey, you know, rents are still going up, population still increasing. Um, that's what drives it long term. That's what drives the real value over decades uh, rather than the short term sentiment. Just use the short term sentiment to your advantage. When, when everything turns negative, and I bet it will do again, you know, into 2018, they're going to start all these trade negotiations. And you can see it's starting already. Oh, well, you're not going to get a deal with the EU if you don't agree to the free movement of people. That'll all start. But there's going to be a load more stuff. You know, say, they were talking about sanctions against UK companies, you know, if, if, the, um, if, if the UK government make Britain, the new Switzerland. Um, I'd, I'd quite like that, actually. I, th I think that'd be awesome. <laughs> in Liechtenstein in the North Sea, wouldn't it be brilliant? Uh, <laughs> but um, I hope they do. I mean, God, that, yeah. I'd, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, um, I, I think it, when things turn really negative like that, use it to your advantage. Use it as a buying opportunity to go out and, and get more stock because it's always short term. People are so fickle. But really, the fundamentals haven't changed. So, you know, what are they on about? So some things have changed. So we talked a bit about regulations and also technology, which has yeah. really impacted the world of property investment in recent years. Talk us through what the biggest things are that have changed and what's the impact being both on demand and supply. OK, so 
clearly the stamp, stamp duty has gone up. It's an extra 3% on buy-to-let property now. So that has affected supply, definitely. Or, or should I say the supply of rental properties for tenants, and it's affected demand from landlords. Um, so there are less landlords buying now. In addition, the other attacks, uh, such as the, the inability to offset all the mortgage interest against the rent, that has um, had quite a big impact in, in terms of not necessarily that people understand what it means, but the general negativity that the media is sort of pushing out about taxation. Obviously, there are these sort of PRA rules around having to have increased percentage of, of rent to your monthly mortgage payments, uh, which means in some cases, not all cases, you, you need more capital in the deal. And that's that's definitely slowed things down to an extent. And I think a lot of landlords are buying in limited companies now. Um, so, you know, stripping the money back from a limited company, if it was originally a loan, that's fine. But you can't get money back over and above a loan unless it's a salary or, you know, if you've made the profits, pull it out as a dividend. So that definitely slows things down. I think I think that might have been the... I think that might have been the objective with a lot, a lot of these rules. I think the government was probably trying to corral us into limited companies um, because they get to see more of what's going on and there are more controls. Um, that's one view. It's difficult to know exactly you know, what they're thinking. So that stuff's changed. Um, tenants have got more rights. Uh, they can go down a, a redress scheme. Uh, it's annoying when they make a, a complaint, really annoying because it takes uh, ages to deal with it. And you're always messing around. That puts off, you know, some landlords maybe. But generally speaking, you know, if you keep your portfolio in good shape, you won't get too many of those complaints. And most of the time you'll win them anyway, as long as you've done things properly. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Yeah, letting agents are obviously, we, we own and run a letting agency. And that's subject to a lot more rules uh, in terms of, um, you know, landlords and how they can sort of... Uh, redress over the letting agency and you know obviously deposits have been protected for a while but there are other routes that tenants can take now if the deposit hasn't been properly protected yeah so the, there are sort of more and more regulations um, we, we have to check into people now if um, to make sure they've got the right to live here we're, we're a bit like the immigration service for um, for uk border force outsourced, uh, <laughs> outsourced. Um, so yeah there's, there's things like that generally demand carrying on growing at a steady rate and supply both contracting and becoming more concentrated as we're forced into running well, companies if you want to be an investor for example yeah i mean you know, certainly the the, the, re the the supply of rental properties has reduced, definitely. Demand from landlords has reduced, definitely. So um, I don't see that as a bad thing. That will push rents up. Yeah, OK, I own a letting agency and I'd rather have loads of landlords coming on within that. But as a landlord, it doesn't really matter that much. If there's less rental properties, it's probably a good thing because you've got less landlords to compete with. So the tenants have got few, you know, less choice, which was always guaranteed to happen with these these government changes. And if the tenants have got less choice, then they're going to pay more rent. That's that's the reality. It's uh, basic um, basic economics, as as outlined by Keynes and others yeah. many times over, over the uh, over the decades. Do you see any other kind of major market shifts going forward, and what do you think the biggest ones will be caused by? 
That is a good question. I, uh, this Brexit thing is just going to rumble on, isn't it? And um, yeah, we're going to we're going to suffer reduced GDP growth, I think, but it won't be a disaster. Um, so I think I think a lot of people have sort of accepted that now. Yeah, okay, we may get to the end, end and they'll be talking about a cliff edge and all the rest of it, but I suspect they'll muddle through it and find a way around it. So that'll offer some opportunities. I don't think it's going to be the thing that pushes us into recession unless. You know, it, it carries on for a good few many years and the economy is in a much worse shape and there are a lot more imbalances. So that could be possible. Other changes? I don't know. I suppose the government could have another go. They seem to have calmed down with their uh, regulatory amendments. The last budget, uh, I think the Chancellor took away indexation relief and then limited companies. You know, yeah, that, that was annoying, but it, it was probably a bit too good to be true anyway. don't know what else. Obviously, inflation's sort of back productivity growth is back as well. So I suspect you'll see greater rental price increases over the next 10 years than you have in the preceding 10 years. Um, I think that will be, you know, for sure, as interest rates go up, if, if they do go up a lot, I mean, this, this Brexit stuff will probably hold them back. I don't know, capital growth will probably bumble along. I, I think, you know, you could target 5% with that. Um, there'll be another recession, that's guaranteed. Uh, I can't tell you when, uh, and um, that's that's what people ask me on an almost daily basis. We're definitely in the second half of this cycle. I'm sure about that. Uh, I think this cycle started in about probably about 2010, so we're about seven years, eight eight years into that. The last cycle was, I think, it was about sort of 16, 17 years. Uh, the one before might have been 10 or 11 years, and the one before that might have been slightly shorter. So we're in the second half. You, um, yeah. You, you, you can be sure there'll be another recession. I don't think it'll be this year. Probably, yeah, maybe not next, but uh, it's going to come at some point. So um, just prepare for it and um, make sure you've got cash in the bank and, and fill your boots when it comes. Buy a load of properties. Everything will be on sale. And um, that's the time to, to dive in, you know? Absolutely. What are the disadvantages or potential risks around investing in property and how can potential investors mitigate them or at least manage the potential issues? Well, interest rates are one of the biggest risks or have been in the past. Um, clearly, in the late 80s, interest rates shot up and precipitated a uh, pretty dirty recession. That hasn't been on the horizon for, well, since then, really. But could happen again. Um, if you want to mitigate that risk, probably go for fixed rates. Uh, fixed rate mortgage deals, you can get long-term 10, 15, 20-year ones from Lloyd's you could, it's always a good idea to keep plenty of cash in the bank. Um, if you keep cash in the bank, times when interest rates go up, you can cash flow that period. Um, often it doesn't happen for too long, uh, but if it does, so you can sell some properties if you have to. I didn't used to think that government regulation or taxation was a big issue, uh, but clearly that has become a bigger issue over the last few years. But um, I think the number one risk that um, that is on the horizon um, is Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, I think he's a dangerous man. Um, I think he's a, he, deep down he's a communist. I think they'll take us back 30, 40 years. Um, if you talk to anyone who was in business or understood money from that period, they all think it will be a disaster. Okay, maybe he won't get away with doing all that he's sort of commented on, but even if he only does 50% of it, it it, uh, it might not be pretty. So he's the biggest risk, I think. What are the main tax considerations and implications in property investment? And how do they affect investors and potential investors, given so much of it has changed in the last couple of years? 
Well, obviously, stamp juice is the biggest one. You're going to be paying a minimum of 4% on buy-select properties because you, you're always going to be paying the 1% above 40, a purchase of 40000 And then there's a 3% sur- surcharge. If you own them personally, you won't be able to offset all the mortgage interest. If you're a high-rate taxpayer, you'll only be able to offset about half of the mortgage interest. So that could mean you pay more in tax than you actually receive in net rental income, which is farcical. So most of those kind of investors would have transferred or would be buying in a limited company now. Um, tax in a limited company is corporation tax. You pay 19% uh, and then you, you pay a tax to take it out as a, a dividend. Um, so you may end up with a so or overall sort of taxation rate of 30, 35%. Uh, which is, you know, manageable. There's no VAT on rent. Um, You will pay VAT on refurbs, which you can't claim back. But if you're converting buildings, you'll only pay 5% VAT on a commercial conversion into residential if you keep it. And if you sell the units afterwards, you'll be able to claim that back. So that's a big benefit. Purchasing commercial buildings, you can get the VAT taken off with a with a, a form, a 1614D form. Uh, that If you're doing a residential conversion, you serve that form on the vendor. Um, that will take the VAT away. But if you've got a, a tenant already in the building and you buy it with the tenant in their commercial building, that's known as a transfer of going concern and that will take the VAT away as well. Now, it's preferable not to buy with the VAT, even though you can claim it back after three months, because if you buy with VAT, you have to pay stamp duty on VAT, which is a complete farce. Again, it's a tax on a tax. So you really don't want to do that. Um, you, you want to try and uh, get the VAT removed at the point of purchase. So I, I, I think they're probably the main types of, of taxation that you have in the, the, the property development and, and rental sphere. You just start with a little single let, you get cracking and you get an account and, and you begin to pick it up over time. So yeah, there is unlimited amount of stuff to learn. Um, I'm still learning stuff all the time. I'm dealing with a big planning application. Yesterday, I, I spoke to a, a guy who's going to help me with affordable housing. And I've never had to negotiate that because I've managed to get it under the threshold or, or buy permitted development type stock. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm learning a load out of that now. How you know We're negotiating with the council. We're doing a viability study and obviously, trying to show that we're not going to make as much money as they they want to believe that we're going to make so that we uh, can get that sort of cost down so there's always more stuff to learn it is vast but just one step at a time start with a little single let start with a little serviced accommodation or maybe a, a hmo you just need to learn about maybe corporation tax and tax on dividends and 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 stamp duty and and a little bit of vat mainly uh, sorry initially uh, and then over a period of time you'll learn more and more Okay. And for potential investors who like the idea of investing um, and want to learn more, are there any resources you could recommend? Obviously, your books. Yeah. So Rob and I have written a whole series of books on these topics. So and the 44 Most Closely Guarded Property Secrets is a good place to start. That's on Amazon. That one is uh, Make Cash in a, a Property Market Crash. That's a good one. I'm just going on to Amazon now because, do you know what? As you get older and time goes on, you forget um, even what books you're in. Um, <laughs> so I'm just bringing it up now. Uh, I've, re- I've written one called Uncommon Sense, which is about investing, you know, going against the tide and investing in businesses and finance and all that sort of stuff. I've got a book coming out shortly, which is um, going to be about commercial conversions. I've written that with Glenn Delve who 
converts a lot of office buildings into apartments. Um, so that's probably going to be called the Commercial Conversion Property Book, although the title isn't completely fixed. What else have we? Um, Low Cost High Life. That's a book that I've written, you know, how to live a, an affordable life of luxury. So that's basically living a champagne lifestyle on lemonade wages. Um, Excellent. Which is, uh, you know, I, I quite enjoy doing. And then Rob's written a whole load of, he's written a book called Money, you know, the, the study of it, know more, make more, give more. He's, he's written a book on how to leverage your life. It's called Life Leverage, uh, and he's written a whole stack more. So I'm just going to go uh, into Amazon and type in Mark Homer or, or Rob Moore. Um, we've got a load of resources on our website, progressiveproperty.co.uk, and um, that's progressiveproperty.co.uk, and I've got a podcast. My podcast is called Mark My Words. Um, you can get it on um, Apple, um, in the Apple podcast section or you can go into stitcher if you just type in stitcher into google stitcher mark my words you can get it on a pc and just listen to it on any device um i've interviewed loads of property experts accountants and planning consultants and developers and i'm gonna have a ground rent specialist on there shortly that there's stacks of episodes on there so just listen to those you can listen to them in the car fantastic just one last question then is there anything that you wish you'd known about property when you first started that other people could learn from yeah that's a good one i mean you can really get bogged down in you know procrastination you know listening to other people listening to you know the bloke in the pub who doesn't really know what he's talking about or listening to an accountant who should know what they're talking about doesn't because he doesn't invest in property or listening to a solicitor who you know will just try and wrap you in cotton wool and protect themselves mm. if you find those around you being negative those around you aren't helping you along your journey or want to hold you back or whatever just don't tell them what you're doing talk talk to people who are doing it and then once you've got sort of 15 20 properties you can just sort of release the information to those who have been negative and watch their faces it's a lot of fun uh, so uh, i don't think i realized that in the early days i told a few too many people a few too many things and they really tried to put me off probably because they were um feeling a bit uncomfortable themselves and uh, we should not told them and, and, and just sort of cracked on. But, you know, in that intervening period where you've not got the experience, just hang around with people who have because they're the ones you should listen to rather than somebody in the pub who has read a newspaper written by a journalist who knows nothing about property. <laughs> I think that's great advice. Cool. Thank you. So as you just mentioned about your books on Amazon and the podcast, is there any anywhere else that people can reach out to follow you or find out more about your business? And what's the best way for them to do that other than the things you've mentioned already? Yeah, so progressiveproperty.co.uk, there's, you know, all our seminars and events. We have a, a training business. We have over 700 training days per annum. So we teach people how to sort of buy to let, refurbish, remortgage and serviced accommodation and rent rooms, all that sort of stuff. We're constantly teaching people how to do that. So those events are on there. We do a very low cost event, it's three days that you can come along to. Uh, it's called Multiple Streams of Property Income. You can network with other people. Um, we also have about 35 progressive property network events running up and down the country. So that there's what, probably one in your local area and they run once a month. They're in 35 different towns and cities across the country once a month. If you go on Progressive Property Network, you'll be able to find your local one and you can start going to that monthly, meet other like-minded people who are investing in property and, and you know get on the journey, start learning. Fantastic. 
Cool. Um, and also you've got a Facebook group. Yes, we have. It's called Progressive Property Community. And there's 15,000 people in there. So if you if you join up to that, Rob's on there moderating it all day. You can go <laughs> ask your questions and there's a load of people in there giving answers. Um, some know more than others. And um, yeah, it's a really good place to start as well, of course. Progressive Property Community Facebook group. Cool. Well, thank you so much for that. I've really enjoyed hearing your insights and it's really great to hear from someone who's had seen both the simple side um, at the beginning of the journey and then gone on to more sophisticated stuff. Thank you, Anna. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.